Good morning. It's good to see all of you at Cornerstone. Thank you. Very sweet. Boy, I appreciate you coming. I just saw some of my friends drive up in the parking lot. I was going to give them a hard time for being so late. How do you know you're late at Cornerstone? You missed the offering. Okay, let's go ahead and continue on in our study of the book of John. Uh, Pastor Andy, I was scheduled to, to speak last weekend and this weekend, but I do want to let you know that Pastor Andy has, is sick. He has a cold with his three kids. I mean, he's either always getting a cold, getting over a cold, or has a cold, all right? And so he's doing fine, though, but he wanted to make sure that I greeted you for him. He's homesick today, but he'll be back with us next weekend. All right, let's go ahead and jump into John chapter 5. Remember I told you whenever we talk about the book of John, we always should be asking the question, why is this here? Now, in this particular chapter, we're going to have this this healing that takes place for a guy that's been, been an invalid for a very long time. And then Jesus is going to have an encounter with the Pharisees. And if you don't know what that term means, I'll explain it to you in a couple of minutes. But let's go ahead and read in John chapter 5, picking it up at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. We don't know which festival it was because there is some concern that John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, that we may have gotten those two out of order. So we're a little confused as to which festival it was. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, in your sermon notes in the app on your phone, or if you have a New International Bible, there is a problem with verse number four. You'll notice in your notes today, verse number four is missing. If you grew up like I did using a King James translation, verse four basically says that from time to time, the Lord would send an angel to stir the water and whoever went down into the water first would be healed. The problem with that scripture is that we can't find it in any of the earlier manuscripts, and so a lot of scholars are uncomfortable feeling that it was a a later addition to clarify what was going on. Now, I'm not not a New Testament specialist, and so I'm not going to argue the point, but I just want to tell you, it really did help clarify what was going on. And so without that verse there, we have to make sure we, we explain to people there was be an angel. What the scripture used to say is an angel would come, stir the water. Whoever went down in it first would be healed to understand what it's about to happen. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for so long, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, in other words, they come walk in and they see him carrying this mat and they say to him, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So This guy is taking it very literally. He said, pick up the mat. He realized he's been healed. I don't know if he carried that mat the rest of his life or not. I mean, he was taking it. Jesus said, carry it. I'm going to carry it, okay? 
Verse 12. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to him, my father is always at work to this very day. That should be reassuring to Christ followers. Our father is always at work even to this day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, we know in chapter 4 from last week that the question of Messiah comes up, and he just flat out says, the Messiah you're looking for, I'm who you're looking for, I am he. All right, take a look at your notes with me, and I know you have your phones, so go ahead and get it ready. I say I know you have your phones because, as I mentioned to you last week, if people forget their child at home, they'll say, oh, they'll be okay, but if they forget their phone, they go back and get it. And so go ahead and open up your notes. Let's talk about actual and accidental Pharisees. Now, there was a pastor, Pastor Larry Osborne, who wrote a book several years ago. He a wonderful pastor. When I wrote my dissertation, he was one of the pastors that I interviewed. Just a super, super nice man. Pastor of a very large church, but he made time for me to come in and just interview and chatted with me. And we had a great time talking, but he wrote a book entitled The Accidental Pharisee. For those of you like me who grew up in church, it's really one of those books you need to read. It's something I encourage all young pastors to read because Pastor Larry really hits the, the nail on the head. I mean, this idea of us becoming accidental Pharisees, I believe that's why this passage of Scripture is there so that we can see how it applies, not what they did, but how it applies to us. All right, so in chapter 5, it becomes clear that the Pharisees are going to oppose Jesus and will be the most prominent enemies of Jesus. Now, it's kind of an odd thing. If we look at most of the New Testament, we find that this is how it breaks down. We've got really just, you know, a few groups, you know, that all kind of fit together as a, as a puzzle. We've got Jesus and his followers. We've got the Pharisees, the Jewish community, the Sadducees, and then we have underlying all of this, we have the Romans who are occupying that area. Now, there were periods of, of time when Rome elected its leaders, all of that, but this wasn't one of them. By the time of the writing of the book of John, or I should say, by the time of Jesus, Augustus Caesar is the head of the empire. This was Julius Caesar's nephew, and he is clearly a dictator. He is someone that what he wants, he gets. Eventually, he's going to have himself deified, in other words, looked at as a god. And so these, they, they just were not nice guys. They were occupying the area where Jesus and all of these people live. This was their their homes, but these guys came in and took it over. So, if you were writing this story, you would tend to make these guys the enemies of Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, the ones who are constantly upset with him are these guys, these Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were highly religious, and they were highly political. Now, we don't think of, of churches... I almost said something silly. I almost said that we don't really think of churches as being political bodies, but you need to know that is my predisposition. I believe that when you came through these doors, I believe there was an implied permission. 
You implied permission that I can talk to you about anything in the Bible. I can talk to you about your family. I can talk to you about any area I believe that the Bible applies to. But my personal opinion is, I don't believe you have given me permission to tell you which political party you ought to belong to, nor who you ought to vote to. I don't believe that you gave me that permission. After the service, if you want to ask me who you should vote for, and we want to drive off the church property, I'll tell you my opinions. But you need to know I grew up in Orange County where you couldn't fling a dead cat and not hit a Republican, okay? But Republicans were different back then. It was about fiscal conservatism. It was just a, a different era. But they were highly political. This idea of separation between the, the religious groups and political groups, that comes much later. That's a concept that comes from the period of the Enlightenment, a philosopher by the name of John Locke. And so it's several hundred, hundreds of years after the time of this writing. At the time, this wasn't that odd. But it also really wasn't necessarily something planned. It was a necessity because the Romans were occupying. There was a constant threat of rebellion in the area. There was a constant threat of the Romans cracking down. And when the Romans cracked down, they just went through and killed everybody. All right. And so there was this, there was a lot of tension in the area between these groups, but we need to keep in mind that for some reason, God wants us to understand it was these highly religious people who became the most adamant foes of Jesus. I think that's why it's here. Because if we look at the highly religious, you need to know I am highly religious. I've been in church all of my life. Now, some people say, well, Pastor Ron, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not all that religious. I understand completely. The I'm fat, but I don't weigh much. I'm <laughs> smart, but I can't you know, put string words together. I, I, I have all kinds of contradictions in my own life and being relig religious but not, or being spiritual and religious, that's one of those inherent contradictions because spiritualism is about religion. Religion is about being spiritual. Those, there is a connection. I recognize the connotations to the word religious and part of it is because of these Pharisees. They were a highly religious group. And so we begin to develop a negative connotation about being religious. I'm a highly religious guy. I became a Christ follower when I was a young child. But this group was known for a particular reputation. Look back at your notes for a minute. They had a reputation for trying to be spiritual, trying to be religious by strictly following a list of rules. We call this legalism. Now, I grew up in a very legalistic church culture. As I look around the room, to be candid, as I look, some of you just aren't going to make it to heaven. Those of you men with beards, sorry, you're not going to make it. I don't know if any of you ladies failed to wear a dress today, but oh, sorry. You know, I, 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 I grew up with a, a list of rules. The, I go to this restaurant uh, down at, Debbie and I spend a lot of time in Carlsbad, and, and I go to this restaurant, and whenever I walk in, if Debbie's not with me, Okay, she's with me, I won't do this. And so they, I'll walk in there and if I'm by myself, and I eat lunch by myself a lot, and it's because I don't really like people. And so, you know, I, uh, that's not really, well, yeah, it is true. But I, I'm, I'll go in there and they'll say, would you like a table? And, and then they'll tell me, you know, there's about a 15 minute wait. They said, but you can sit at the bar right now. So I'll go and sit at the bar just because I think it's hilarious. My dad would have pitched a fit if he ever walked in. Now you say, well, Pastor Ron, do you, you know, you, you, you starting to drink? No, I don't drink. And you know why I don't drink? The Bible doesn't teach complete abstinence from alcohol. It's just alcohol tastes bad. It's an acquired taste. You say, well, Pastor Ron, you don't drink coffee either. 
that's because it tastes bad. <laughs> no one in the history of humanity ever took their first swig of coffee and said, mm-hmm, good. <laughs> okay, that never happened. Some of you, I know you can't live without it, and we, we understand we call it Christian crank. We just know that you got to have it. And, and so we're here at the church. We never gather together without coffee because we know that wouldn't truly be spiritual. And so, you know, the, just this, the, I, I grew up a lot of these kinds of rules. So I'll go in there and sit in the, and the, the, the bartender's gotten to know me. And he'll, he'll say to me, iced tea? Said, sure, I'm not driving. Okay. And so, you know, I just, I grew up in that kind of environment. I didn't go to movies when I was a kid. I didn't, uh, I didn't go to, there were a lot of places. I wouldn't go to, uh, my, when I was 12 or 13, my mom dropped us off at the bowling alley and my dad pitched a fit, okay? He actually, I, I shouldn't say he pitched a fit. He talked to my mom, but he decided he should lose that argument. And so he just kind of let it go. And I asked him, I said, Dad, why, why is that a problem? And he said, well, because there's, uh, there's pool tables at a, a bowling alley. And I said, okay. And he said, there's pool tables and bars. And, and so, you know, it just, we kind of, we took our rules and we kind of strung them together. The Pharisees did the same thing. Now, we can laugh about that, but the truth of the matter is, if you've been a Christian more than a few years, I can talk to you for about five or 10 minutes and I can identify your rules because Phariseeism isn't something we choose. Phariseeism is something that sneaks up on us. Look back at your notes for a minute. A lot of the Pharisees passionately loved God. So Pastor Ron, they're the bad guys. The Bible also tells us that many of the Pharisees followed Jesus. But passionate faith, as much as a, a, a deep love for God, can sometimes develop a dark side. You know, when, you, when you're saying, I'm doing this for the Lord, sometimes we can justify all kinds of things. Like if we look back through Christian history, we look back at the Crusades, an awful lot of atrocities were committed during the Crusades by people who felt they were doing battle for Jesus. Sometimes we can justify bad things because, well, we're, we're doing it for the right reasons. The Inquisition, another area where, where highly religious people were doing bad things, and it, it got there not because of a lack of love for God, but they talked themselves into these things. The Pharisees had that problem. We still battle that problem today of a passionate love for God leading us into all kinds of bad decisions. All right, take a look at the next one. The, no one plans on being a Christian who judges, condemns, or compares themselves with others. No one plans on that. No one intentionally signs up to join JFJ. JFJ is a club that oftentimes we Christians get into. It's called Jerks for Jesus. where I become highly ju judgmental, I become condescending, I, I become arrogant. I, I've got my list of things that, well, I don't think you guys are gonna make it. Oh, no, you're kind of a close call, I'll get back to you. Okay, no, was, you know, I remember I went to a Promise Keepers. You now, Promise Keepers, I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's a, that's a Christian men's ministry, and we took a bunch of guys down to Promise Keepers, and, and these, are, these are all guys that have made a commitment to Christ who are going there because they want to grow, and they're going to worship together. They're going to listen to study. They're wanting to know how to be better Christian fathers and men in our community. And, you know, we're all walking in, and this guy's standing up there, you know, with a bunch of Scripture written on, on the, these, these placards, you know, holding up one after the other and basically saying, you guys are all going to hell. 
And I'm thinking to myself, dude, I, I, are you sure you're at the right conference, okay? Did, did, you, did you, like, you know, take the wrong turn off the freeway or something? And so I'm thinking, you know, theologically, I think you're a nut. But even if he hadn't theologically been such a nut, I thought he was the president of Jerks for Jesus. I said, Pastor Ron, that, that, that's, a, that's so judgmental. Friends, to be honest, I spent a lot of time in my life in this club. The Bible... The Bible was something, shoot, I could beat the snot out of somebody with a Bible. To be honest, I really, for a very long time, I was not someone that you wanted to argue with doctrine about. I just wasn't because I know the Scripture, I know it well, and I have, it's not one of the spiritual gifts, but I got a lot of snarkism, sarcasm and snarkiness in me. I mean, it's just, it's just bad. That's not how the Word is supposed to be used. The, the word is supposed to be something that draws people. The title of our series is Come and See. In other words, the, the gospel, the good news is something that's supposed to draw people towards Jesus. But sometimes our desire to want a clear list of rules, like the Pharisees struggled with, sometimes it causes us to treat people in an unloving way. We, be, we start to become an accidental Pharisee in lots of ways. Sometimes it's a sudden event. We'll go to a camp and get all excited about our Christian walk. You know, we'll, we'll hear a new speaker, a new influencer comes into our life. Or maybe it's like me, lifelong indoctrination. You're told all these rules all of your life, so you start thinking, well, that makes sense to me. Friends, it only makes sense to us because we've been told it all of our lives. Those we don't intentionally become unloving. We don't intentionally become judgmental. We, we just kind of slide into it. Then we begin to look at others. Back in your notes, we judge the commitment, the purity, or positions of others. And when they don't measure up to us, arrogance starts to corrupt our hearts. We can, we can be a political Pharisee where we look at what other people think and condescend to them and judge them. We, we can be a, oh, I'll be honest, we can be a health Pharisee. At my house, I, I go to the grocery store quite a bit. The, I don't buy groceries. I go to buy what I want to eat because my wife won't buy unhealthy stuff for me. And if I'm going to get unhealthy stuff, I have to go get it myself. Well, that doesn't bother me. I'm willing to go. But a couple, my, my son and daughter-in-law are staying with us. They were supposed to stay with us for a couple of weeks. So far, it's been four months, so pray for us. But... We go in, and, and we were going to get some, and he asked his mother, said, you know, hey, do we have this? And she said, no, and all of a sudden I realized this is going to turn ugly fast because she starts explaining to him the so-and-so had talked to her, you know, and explained why this is bad for us, and so Ross and I, out of her hearing, saying, we don't get that anymore because that person has told her that it's bad for us. She needs to shut up, okay? The Lord said... Sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes I, I get rules made for me from people I don't even hardly know, okay? Phariseeism is something that, that we can fall into in our politics and in our, in our, our health. It, how do you know that we're struggling with it? When I start looking at your Christian walk and I become condescending, when I start 
a Christian walk and start becoming unloving, want to start looking at, start making judgment about you, whether or not you really love Jesus or you don't love Jesus. In other words, it's any time that a Christ follower is walking along with a litmus test or a clipboard saying, oh, no, that problem, they're probably not going to make it. Ooh, yeah, eh, barely. Okay. Now, just look back at your notes with me for just a minute. This judgment of commitment is one of the signs, and it causes me to become more and more arrogant. Number eight, right but wrong. Accidental Pharisees are dangerous because we can be right about part of the Scripture, but wrong about the totality of Scripture. Now, this concept, to be honest, is a little bit tricky for people. The, when we read something in the Bible, oftentimes we'll read that, and we have a genuine desire to live it. But we have to be a little bit careful because Sometimes we can be right in part, but wrong in totality. I'll give you an example from your family, and this is one I, I think all of us will understand. The, my wife and I, from time, if my wife's going to meet you for lunch or something, she's going to be on time. If she's going to meet me for lunch, she's going to be late. It's just happens because she's a very busy woman and she knows I love her and she knows it's not going to be a huge deal. But you know, it's, when she's late, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll kind of get irritable. And mainly my irritability isn't because she's late. My irritability is because I'm hungry. All right. And so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that. And, and, you know, I can say to her, you're late and I may be right, but I'm going to end up being wrong. <laughs> he said, Pastor Ron, she was late. I know, but the way I said it, like some of your husbands are always struggling with this concept. You know, your wife will say to you, well, it's not what you said, it's the way you said it. And men just want to pound their head against the wall because we struggle with that. What's happening is you're right, but only in part. You're not right in the totality of it. As Pharisees, I can be right in part of the Scripture but wrong in the totality of Scripture. The, you guys know what a, a scale looks like. You know, it's this thing that's got arms on it, and, you know, you, you remember it in the, the movies. They were always weighing their gold on it, and, you know, and it, it would tip one way or another. And The Bible teaches that we are to defend the faith. And if faith is too difficult or nebulous of a concept for you, then we'll just, it's a little simpler. Well, defend the church. But the Bible doesn't just say that. The Bible also says that in doing this, I am to be humble and gentle. It says I am to, a lot of Christians are unaware of this, the Bible says that we are to obey authority. Basically, it teaches we obey authority until we can't obey authority. We have examples of, of Peter standing up and saying, you know, who should I obey, you or God? Those where there's direct conflict, but where there's not direct conflict, the Bible teaches we're to obey those in authority, that authority is constituted by God. It, it, ta it also tells us that we are to live at peace as much as we can, live at peace with other people. It also says, avoid foolish 
controversies. People are always wanting to ask my opinion about stuff. And to be honest, the, on most stuff, I'm really hard to get an opinion out of because I know the Scripture tells me that if your opinion disagrees with me, I still have to be humble and gentle, and that's no fun. The, I have to live at peace. I can't really argue with you. And, and to be honest, I, I can't even really make you look bad or something. And so, you know, and, and, so, and, and I'm to avoid foolish controversies. The problem with a Pharisee is that this is true, but it is part true. Whereas the Bible has more than just that. We are to look at the totality of Scripture. But this is a difficult concept for people because sometimes we don't know the other things that the Bible says or we read something and we become excited about it and so we really focus in on that one thing. Friends, Pharisees are really good at this and it's hard to argue because it's not that this is untrue, it's that the Bible teaches other concepts as well. Go back to your notes with me for just a minute. Let's not miss the most important part of this passage of Scripture. Let's not forget this guy who was laying there that, that the whole controversy started with. He's been, he's been sick or an invalid for 38 years. That's a really, really long time. How many of you are younger than 38 years? Yeah, I mean, it was longer than you've been alive, all right? Debbie, now, truthfully, Debbie and I, we've been married. Oh, shoot, we're coming up to, I think we just had like our 38th year anniversary. And so it's been, you know, Debbie says, does it feel like a long time? And, and I, I think to myself, all right, be smart here, be smart here. No, 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 just, just like yesterday. And so, you know, the, friends, the, he's been sick a really long time. And where this comes into play is sometimes you or I have something that we've been praying for for a really long time. See, this guy was laying by the pool in, in that missing verse 4. It says he was waiting for the angel to stir the water. In other words, he was, he was praying. He was wanting God to help him. And I imagine after 38 years, it got kind of discouraging. And when Jesus talks to him and says, hey, do you want to get well? He says, there's no one, there's no one here to help me down in the pool. And, you know, just, just listen to his voice. There's no one to help me. This is a, this is a voice of discouragement. So here's the question. How long should you and I keep praying about something we desperately want? After pastoring for 30 years, I think I'm qualified to help you with this one. How long do you pray about something that you really want? First, keep praying about it as long as you desperately want it. Sometimes you pray about something for a while and you begin to think, nah, I'm not sure that I'm really praying for the right thing here. There have been things that I really prayed for. And then over time I thought, oh, Lord, I'm glad you didn't answer that prayer. I'm glad, I'm glad that didn't, Lord. And so my, my feelings change. If your feelings change, you don't have to keep praying for something you no longer desperately want. The second way you know whether or not to keep praying is you keep praying until God says no or the door closes. Sometimes you're praying about something and you realize that, no, God's not going to do this. The, the apostle Paul kept praying for something and the Lord said, no, or a door will close and you realize, oh, that prayer is no longer appropriate. That, that's, that's something you have to, to prayerfully use judgment on. So first, if your feelings change or second, if God says no, or you see that door close or until God gives it to you. Say, so Pastor Ron, you know, you would pray for something for a very long time. The, I talk about my youngest son a lot because I'm just incredibly proud of him. And you know, one of the reasons I'm proud of him now is I look at where he's at now and 
And I'm just so incredibly proud because he was a rotten kid, okay? Now, I don't mean when he was little. When he was little, he was a great kid. But then he became a teenager and a young adult, and man, it was terrible, okay? There were lots of times his mom would just, just be crushed and hurt. You know, the teenage years were rough. And then when, when he was, I don't know, 19 or 20, and we lost his older brother, friends, things turned bad. Things just turned bad. And Debbie and I, we would pray, please, God, please. And you know, so Ron, did, did you have to pray for a long time? We prayed for a long time. Some of you have kids or grandkids or other loved ones that you've been praying for. And you say, oh, Pastor Ron, I'm like that guy. I've been praying year after year after year. Keep praying as long as it's the desperate desire of your heart or uh, uh, until God gives it to you. That's how long we keep praying because we look at him now and to be candid, we're just shocked. Uh, from time to time, I'll put my arm around him and I'll, I'll just tell him, son, if there's an alien that's taken over your body, we want you to know we're okay with it. We are. You know, you remember, see all those movies, how the alien gets inside, you'll burst out of their cell. I'm okay with it. But what happened there? After years of prayer, God moved. Some of you are wondering whether or not it's time to quit. We don't quit until God changes our heart or the door is closed. As long as there is breath, there is hope, we continue to pray. <laughs> Bow your heads with me for just a minute. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are still the God of answering prayer. And so, Lord, we pray today that, Lord, for those one or two or 20 or whatever it is that is feeling discouraged, God, help them to know in our story, they are the guy who's been at it for 38 years, and Jesus is walking our way. Lord, I pray you would give them confidence that we can trust you for the future. We ask it in your name. Amen. Stand with me. I'd like you to stay and enjoy one more song with the band. There's going to be some people up front. If you're someone that needs someone just to pray with you, I invite you down. Otherwise, let's stay and let's sing this together.